Good evening, ladies and gents, and welcome to this very special episode of the AJ Roberts Show. I'm AJ Roberts, your host as always, and today we are joined by none other than Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. Uh, Dr. Malone, good afternoon where you are in the States, and good evening to everyone else watching around the UK. Uh, how are you doing this fine afternoon, sir? Good, and thank you, AJ. Thanks for having me on, and, and uh, deep apologies to your listenership. I don't mean to disrespect you. I apologize for being late. Uh, it's my fault entirely. It's not AJ's. But that's all right. It, it, it happens. Um, guys and girls, before we start, uh, just a quick reminder that, um, as many of you would be aware, I don't have any sponsors for my show. I, I never have, um, and I don't ever plan to. Um, it's all about the, the key message that we're trying to get out here to the population. Um, however, as you know, I only have one fee, and that is if you like the show, if you get a lot of value from the show, if um, you get some laughter from the show, okay, mm -hmm. and it helps you, share it with one person. That's all I ask, okay? And then as we do that, the, the message gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it helps more and more people. So if you're watching now, please whether it's on Facebook or YouTube, please share with your friends and family because what myself and Dr. Malone are going to discuss this evening is very, very informative indeed, and you're going to get a lot from it. And so will your friends and family. Um, so Dr. Malone, uh, obviously you're in the United States. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, just to put a bit of context to the, uh, the listenership, just so they can understand who you are uh, and what you actually do? Yeah, thanks, AJ. So I'm a, a physician. I'm licensed to practice medicine in the state of Maryland, but I don't practice. I predominantly work on building teams and solving complicated problems in the biodefense space and medical countermeasure development, usually uh, for government, uh, particularly Department of Defense sponsored programs. My primary focus is on developing systems and products to support the warfighter uh, and, and to support the DOD mission, which is a little bit different from the health and human service mission in the United States. We're, we're you know, I live in a world, and I'm security cleared, uh, I'm, I, we live, I live in a world in which we're, people that I work with are very, very aware of the bio threats that we face and uh, the implications of new biology and um, also the traditional uh, bio threats that are out there that have been used by our adversaries over many years. And we're very focused on trying to come up with new solutions and technologies that can be deployed very rapidly to protect the warfighter and particularly to address the needs of, uh, of the um, special forces, uh, which is kind of a unique space. My background, in addition to being a physician and a scientist, I was trained in, in uh, as an undergraduate in, in biochemistry and molecular biology at the at UC Davis, um, and then uh, did the first two years of my medical school at Northwestern in Chicago. Then uh, worked on my graduate studies at the Salk Institute in UC San Diego, in uh, La Jolla, California. Then finished my MD. Uh, did a fellowship at in pathology at UC Davis again, was a faculty member there for many years, then recruited to be a faculty member at um, 
University of Maryland, Baltimore. Then I worked at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences in uh, vaccine development and breast cancer and uh, high throughput genomics for breast cancer. And uh, did various startups along the way, worked with a Norwegian uh, founder of a company and did the incorporation for a firm called Adovio. Uh, Novio was the pioneer in the use of pulsed electrical fields to deliver uh, uh, genes to uh, patients for vaccine purposes. Uh, my, my client and partner in that was Jakob Matheson of Norway, which resulted in me having good ties with Norway and to some extent the Norwegian government. Um, and uh, after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, I left academe and went to work for a uh, company that had the contract for all uh, advanced development, that's product development for all medical countermeasures for the US Department of Defense. And since then I've been very focused on not the discovery research side, but the advanced development side. Along the way, when I was a graduate student, uh, between 1987 and 1989, I had a series of discoveries and uh, subsequent patents. And it's a, it's a whole nother story, take us half an hour to go through it. But it is the, the fundamental technology platform and in, in most of the associated uh, um, methods and in, in molecular biology that, that is the basis for the current vaccines. Uh, there's two major improvements that have happened since, or major or minor, depends on how you think of it. There are two significant improvements that have happened since then. Uh, one is the identification of uh, incorporation of pseudouridine, a different base from the typical RNA base that's used, uridine. Um, uh, RNA is composed of AUGC, DNA is ATGC. So swapping out the uridine for a synthetic uridine um, can reduce the immunogenicity of the RNA itself. That's the, the contribution of Carrico and Weissman that we often hear about. And uh, a major, I think that probably the enabling technology was uh, um, advanced was done by Peter Cullis at the University of British Columbia and his team who have created the uh, improved lipid formulations. This is the coat that condenses the RNA. They're not liposomes. They actually self-assemble into yeah. nanoparticles. And uh, w back when I had done my work, we used what's called a quaternary amine. This is something that is makes the lipid so it's always positively charged. And what Peter and his group did was find that if they use a an amine that is pH sensitive, so it changes its charge depending on how much acid or base is in the surrounding environment uh, as, it, as it interacts with cells after injection, that that can really improve uh, the in vivo delivery activity. <clears throat> and so the, the formulations of Peter and his team are directly used by uh, BioNTech, Ergo Pfizer, and by uh, CureVac. And a reverse engineered version of that is used by Moderna. So this, this whole bringing me into the RNA discussion about these particular vaccines, uh, the, 
a lot of people seek my voice out in part because I understand the technology very well because I created it basically. Um, but I also have this really strong background. I finished up my training at with a fellowship at Harvard in uh, uh, international clinical development, regulatory affairs, uh, bioethics, other things, biostatistics, uh, epidemiology. And, and that combined with 30 years of experience in way too many outbreaks is kind of what brings me to the present. Just another little fun fact. I, I was the guy that was at the tip of the spear for DOD in bringing forth what we now call the Merck Ebola vaccine from the Public Health Agency Canada. So that's the, one of the things about working for the DOD is they really don't like publicity. They, with this kind of stuff, they like to stay uh, below the radar. Um, it's not it's not their job to uh, generate a lot of hype and spin and, and excitement. They they just kind of want to get the job done, which is why I like working with them. Is is it's not a bunch of uh, high profile academic thought leaders that are all trying to get the Nobel Prize. It's a bunch of folks trying to make products to to save the warfighter, and it's yeah. very it's very product focused and. You know, it's getting a manuscript is not the goal. The goal is to get a product that's going to help the warfighter, and everything else is just noise. So I prefer working with those kind of people, and it's my great pleasure to to focus on that mission space. So I hope that gives you what you were asking for, AJ, in terms of a uh, little context for who I am. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, uh, Robert. It's uh, when, as everybody would have been listening then, that is quite some. Uh, cv that you have there um and actually you know it's totally back up obviously everything that we're going to talk talk about uh yeah. this evening um so obviously, uh, i just want to start off by asking obviously given the technology that you invented that was obviously then used in subsequent vaccines that have been rolled out um very very quickly given the timing of the uh the the, the start of what we uh, what was deemed a pandemic um that's been a big question on the end of everybody's tongue. How surely, how can a vaccine come out so quickly? Um, you know, the, the, there's been lots of squabbling. I've seen it for months on end that oh, the, these have been uh, these have been in trials for years. These have been in trials for months. Well, clearly, they were, you know, these particular ones weren't because they skipped animal trials. But um, what was it in regards to um, these particular vaccines that got you extremely alarmed in order for you to actually start speaking out about the, the concerns and the issues with them? Well, I try not to get extremely alarmed. I've, I've seen too many things and I've been too many of these outbreaks and, and maybe what I hear is that people like that I have kind of a calm, steady tone and I'm not, I don't come across as extremely alarmed. Uh, for me, this, you know, the, a lot of the goofiness and the politics and the bad decisions, uh, it's just like deja vu. I see it again and again and again. It never gets any better. It, the same mistakes get made. And now it's like the same mistakes are getting made on a huge scale compared to the usual. Uh, but but I'm I extremely alarmed. I, I am worried about a number of things. What got me sucked into this uh, I, I, like I said, my client doesn't really like publicity. Uh, you may notice that the DOD was in the U.S. was not given credit for the Ebola vaccine, but they were the ones that drove it. Uh, that's just the style, um, you know, focus on getting the job done. And uh, that's kind of where I come from, too. But 
I had this, it was a cascade of things. I was on a call with a Canadian physician uh, who is a frontline doc, sees hundreds and hundreds of patients. And he told me this horrific story of uh, how he was seeing these vaccine-related adverse events, things that he thought were vaccine-triggered. And he would report them to the Canadian government at, by the proper channels. You know, he's doing everything right and proper. And uh, they were just immediately dismissed as not being vaccine-related. And in his clinical judgment, they were. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, so he was telling these stories and the nature of those adverse events that people were experiencing. And I'd heard some of this before. And I'd also, I, I interact back then quite a bit more than I do now with uh, senior people at the FDA that are outside of the review branch. And I had warned them about some of the risks of the spike protein that's mm -hmm. used as the antigen in these. Yep. And, um, and actually had discussions with the head of S Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research about this. And, um, but this Canadian physician just poured his heart out to me between 10 and 12 one Saturday night. And, and I had to just say at the end, you know, he told me about the Canadian government enticing children to take vaccine without getting their parents' approval by giving out ice cream. Yeah, and he that. told me about the uh, the requirement that communities were going to stay in lockdown unless they had at least 70% vaccine uptake. And I've got the training. I know I know all about these vaccines, how good they are, and, and the weaknesses that they have. And I knew that, that that whole logic that we could reach herd immunity with these vaccines was wrong. It, yeah. it just isn't supported by data. And uh, so I, I went to bed after listening to my colleague and telling him at the end, there's just nothing I can do. I'm, you know, it breaks my heart, but I'm not a Canadian. I don't understand your government and your regulatory affairs structure. And I just don't know where the pressure points are, who I could call. Went to bed and I woke up in the morning and I recognized it was like one of these, you know, happens sometimes. It's been in your, in your lizard brain while you've been sleeping. And, and I realized that I did have something I could do. I could, I could put out a piece in the lay press about the bioethics of what's going on. And I'm, I'm pretty well trained in bioethics and so is my wife, who's a PhD. And we just got up in the morning and we started talking about it and, and we went back over all the rules. And I know the, the regulatory affairs pretty well. I actually know the person that wrote the emergency use authorization uh, justifications. And uh, so I poured over all that stuff and, and you know, went back to the fundamentals of, of the Nuremberg Code and the Helsinki Accords and um, the Belmont Report here in the United States and the federal law that's called the common rule that we have here. It's about protecting research subjects. And I wrote a piece that said, this is wrong. And here's why. And uh, these are the rules, and they're not being applied. They're just being overlooked or, or disregarded. Mm. And that went pretty viral when I posted it in Trial Site News. There were other things. There was a Canadian scientist, uh, Dr. Bridal, and colleagues that had uncovered 
uh, the Pfizer common technical document. This is the dossier for the drug, for the vaccine from Japan. And mm -hmm. I've gone over that and discovered some things that, that I was uh, very uncomfortable with that were clearly sloppy and not, not right and proper. Can I, um, can I just start also identified. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I've, I think I've read the same document. Um, in the document, it refers to um, some of the animal trials, some of the trials that were carried out on animals, and they found that yeah. spike well, proteins were um, had basically intoxicated like every organ in the subject's bodies. Um, in the document that I read, is that am I referring to the same document that you read? Yeah, you have to be really careful at looking at that. A lot of people misinterpret it. Um, mm. So they use, uh, there's three key things that you're supposed to do. And basically, they did none of the things they're supposed to do. The, the governments uh, have just let them have a pass and just proceed to injection into humans. Normally, all of those tests have to be done under very rigorous conditions called good laboratory practices. And they have to be done with the actual drug. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, they weren't done with the actual drug. They were done with surrogates. Uh, they weren't done under good laboratory practices. It kind of looks like they cobbled together data that they had lying around for other purposes and put it all in a document and sent it in. Uh, and they didn't really do the work that they're supposed to do. It's it's wow. an extraordinary document. And um, furthermore, they did... They did things that uh, seemed to be uh, intended to obscure what's really going on. So they, they used this uh, protein from a firefly instead of the gene itself. So I don't know if you have fireflies or glowworms uh, in whales. I suspect you do. Um, and so there's a protein in fireflies that causes the luminescence that they use to signal to uh, between themselves when they're up in the trees or in the grass. And that's called luciferase. It has nothing to do with the devil, just the name that they, the guys applied when they cloned it. And this protein is really good for, for detecting whether or not you get a DNA or an RNA into a cell because you can take that cell or that tissue and pop it open and add a little squirt of the, the chemical that the firefly uses and it'll emit photons and photons are super easy to detect and very linear so being a dod guy you know about all of the enhanced vision night vision all that technology yeah. that's all about uh, photon detection and amplification so we have really good tech for that uh in you know night cameras and things like that and and wow. so you can you can detect the photons and you can count them and you can get a very clear measure of how much protein is there. Or you can do the parlor trick and you can take the whole mouse or the whole rat and put it on the table and under an anesthesia, inject in the substrate and, and put the photomultiplier or tube over it. And you can detect areas that glow. But the photons that are coming out of the organs of the mouse um, have to go through the skin and the bone and, and the fat and everything else. And they get scattered all over the place. It is the least sense. It looks really cool because you can say, oh, look, there's the glowing part on the mouse. That's where the gene expression is. But in fact, it's the least sensitive way to look at it. And so it biases so that it looks like it's only at the site of injection. But in fact, um, 
if you were to actually go through and dissect the animal and analyze each of those organs, then you would get the real number of how much of that gene expression is there in each of those places. For some reason, they decided not to do that. It's a gross oversight that they didn't get called on the carpet for it. So we don't actually know anything, even in those crummy experiments, about where the protein is made, how much mm -hmm. is made, for how long. It just yeah. didn't. They gave them a pass. And let alone trying to figure it out in folks like you and me, because humans are not mice uh, in, you know, in so many ways. Uh, there's, yeah. We have a saying in, in the animal research world, mice lie, monkeys mislead, and the only thing that predicts response in humans is response in humans. And that's that's the that's God's honest truth. So mm -hmm. so they uh, they got away with uh, an assay that really uh, is not appropriate for looking at where the protein is expressed. And then but then they did much more sensitive uh, in appropriate ways, but again in a kind of a sloppy non-GLP manner. They put a radioactive tag on the end of the RNA. And then they also did a sensitive assay for the presence of the lipids. This is the, the butter that coats the RNA, condenses it down, and slips it into the cells. So this is a novel chemical that is used for that. And the, the lipid part accumulates in a, after you inject it, it goes all over the body. It accumulates in various organs like spleen and bone marrow. Bone marrow is a little worrying. Spleen you would expect, liver you'd expect. But it goes all over, and in particular, it concentrates about 12% of all those injected lipids in those animals ended up in the ovary, mm. uh, not in the testis in the male animals, which is a little odd. And it may have something to do with some of the cells that protect the testis called Sertoli cells, but that's speculation. But in any case, the observation was that these lipids go into the ovary. That does not mean that you have spike protein expressed in the ovary. You may. Um, it, they didn't bother to detect, to do, run the assay to determine it. Uh, so it doesn't rule out that it's not happening, but mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't show spike protein in the ovary, which some people make the assertion. But it does show that the RNA goes all over. By the way, the RNA does not accumulate in the ovary in the same way that the lipid component does. So clearly the two kind of get broken apart mm -hmm. uh, at some point. So those, those studies are basically a hot mess. I don't know if you have that expression in Wales, but uh, you mentioned sheep, and I suspect anybody like me that, you know, I live on a horse farm, and I've been a farmer longer than I've been a physician, and I think I understand what a hot mess is. Yeah, Probably yeah. you do too. Um, mm. So uh, there it is. It is a hot mess, and uh, I can't believe that they got away with this, uh, but they did. And it gets to the point that, you know, we've been given a, a line about, oh, we didn't cut any corners. Well, I'm sorry, they cut corners all over the place. Uh, mm. This, in, in, in terms of any normal development progression for any normal vaccine, uh, this is off the charts in terms of what they were allowed to get away with. And, uh, you know, I, it, if you give a pharmaceutical company uh, full indemnification, which means you can't sue them for anything, and uh, you give them tons of money, they'll take it. And if you tell them that you don't have to abide by the rules, they won't. Uh, and because they, they can make more money, you know, that's what they do for that's that's what it's all about. Um, yeah. and all this jibber jabber about oh, we're all about saving lives and everything. 
uh, maybe at the margins, but mostly they're about say, making money. Yeah, I think, I think we're seeing that. Yeah, yeah, I think worldwide we're clearly seeing that because you only have to look at um, just the level of um, the way, well, the level of things have been raised in Australia. It's gone from like everyone kind of, uh, yeah, there's a bit of COVID around, chilling on the beach to like almost like full on dictatorship mode in the space of a few weeks. Like they called the out the army, right? Instead. Yeah, and they, they've got army on the streets, like and uh, roadblocks. I, I, I literally speak to friends every single day. So we used to live on the Gold Coast for a little bit. And um, I, I speak to different people every single day in different states, asking them, like, you know, what's it like? What's the vibe? How people, you know, so I can get a bigger picture of this all uh, and speak to the, you know, the best possible people to come on the podcast to obviously, like, give a real account of what's going on. Um, and, yeah, obviously different states uh, have different things because it's such a big country. However, Sydney, um, obviously, you're looking at, like, martial law pretty much. Um, the Gold Coast, my friend today, said that they're... Um, putting in roadblocks like right near where they live, checking to make sure that, you know, if you're going to the shop, it is actually for essential reasons. And, it's and, and all that would be bad enough um, if they weren't also blocking the development of drugs that could be used safely um, early 100%. on. And uh, mm. so that's been some of the other developments. The big bombshell today was Tony Fauci himself has mm -hmm. suddenly pivoted under pressure and is now endorsing uh, drugs to be administered early in infection. So he's now directly endorsing the idea that physicians all over the world have, have been uh, lost their licenses for. I mean, now here in the States even, we can lose our, I can lose my medical license for what I'm saying here on this show because it's branded as medical misinformation, mm -hmm. because it is not the official party line from the World Health Organization, EMA, or the uh, CDC. But suddenly the, there was this huge um, event last week where uh, a, a somebody within the CDC in the United States leaked a slide deck about the CDC's own analysis concerning the Delta variant, and they leaked it to the Washington Post. And suddenly all the lies became visible and they couldn't hide anymore. And they, part of the things about that slide deck, you know, we now know that the Pfizer vaccine and the CDC is claiming even natural infection only protects you for about six months. Mm -hmm. So now we have Pfizer saying, we've got to get the jab every six. By the way, Pfizer also in parallel has announced, we've got a new drug. And, and the only way we're going to get out of this is, is we need drugs plus. So this was like five days ago. Pfizer yeah. put out a tweet saying, oh, the only way we're going to get out of this is vaccines plus drugs. And we're going to have to have early treatment drugs. And, and then uh, yesterday night, uh, Tony did a uh, presentation at a think tank in D.C., that was recorded and there's a transcript and I've sent you the links for your colleagues. And uh, now Dr. Fauci is saying what we need to do is administer drugs early in the course of infection and turn this into the common cold. Now that sounds an awful lot like things that physicians in the UK have been losing their medical license for saying. I'm and afraid. in Canada, okay? It is, it is the message that they've been putting out, that they've been told they're knocking futz about 
saying, you know, that they're crazy people for saying this and uh, that they should lose their license and not be able to practice medicine for trying to put this into practice. And now today we've got uh, the documentation of Tony Fauci last night saying exactly what your docs in the UK that have been uh, shut down and, and reprimanded and are in danger of losing their license and in Canada and in Germany and in France and in um, uh, uh, Portugal and Spain. Suddenly, uh, Dr. Fauci himself is saying the things that they've been saying for months. Mm. And we also now have a new paper that's come out from Israel. No surprise, right, for it. Double-blind randomized clinical trial, ivermectin clearly shows efficacy in outpatient environment. Boom. Uh, boom, mic drop. Um, wow. And uh, so we're now there. Uh, I'd been warning about the impact of public trust in the public health enterprise, both in the states and globally, if, if it turns out that the vaccines aren't perfectly safe and effective and uh, ivermectin is, is, uh, has therapeutic benefit and is safe. And the other one that I haven't talked about so much is the lab leak hypothesis and the prospect that this thing actually came out of a gain of function research program which, by the way, my colleagues at Defense Reduction Agency sent some money to Wuhan for, as did uh, the good Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I can't sort out. Um, it, it, this is one of those that looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a gain-of-function um, uh, mutant, but I can't prove it, and I can't prove who let it loose. You know, did it, did it scoot out the back door because some janitor thought he could make a buck selling an animal carcass on the wet market. It's just a few blocks away, you know, in China, anything goes right. Everybody's scrambling to make a buck or a yen yeah, yeah. or whatever the currency is. Um, was it that, or was it, uh, you know, something more surreptitious let loose in the beating industrial heart of Wuhan? There's no way to sort that out. Uh, but, but it is what it is. And, and, my my colleagues in the intelligence community had had thought that that the Chinese government had this massive infrastructure that would be able to contain a coronavirus outbreak that they had built up for years after SARS. Clearly, they couldn't. Uh, and this thing replicates; it's too hot. The other big bombshell is, I mean, it's just the last week has just been bombshell almost day after day after day. Uh, with the CDC deck with Delta is that there, this is uh, techie talk. Um, this is epidemiology stuff, but I'll bet a lot of your listeners have heard what R naught is and the reproductive coefficient, meaning, you know, if an R naught of three for a virus means that at baseline with no other interventions, no masks or anything, if I get infected with the virus on average, I'm likely to spread it to three other people. That would be an R naught of three. So the original virus had an R naught of two and a half, according to the CDC, and this one has an R naught of about eight. Okay, that is wicked hot in terms of, of infection. It infects people uh, that have previously had vaccines. 
they, re they replicate the virus at about the same level as people who have not been vaccinated. That's straight out of Tony's mouth. And uh, it's not me saying something crazy. Uh, and it's in the CDC slide deck. And, uh, and they spread it uh, just the same as folks that are unvaccinated. And when the CDC, you can do some uh, sophisticated modeling for uh, what that means and what the vaccine uptake would be required with these leaky vaccines. That's what they're called. That's a technical term. These are leaky vaccines. They, they don't prevent infection and replication in you. They just reduce it, the, the probability that you get infected. They don't change the replication. They don't change the infectivity once you are infected. In other words, infecting other people, transmissibility. So they're leaky. And, can, I just, uh, um, can I just break that down a minute, um, Doctor? Yeah, just, sure. um, just want to strip that back for the audience. Okay, so this is something that a lot of people have been talking about for several months now. Um, and in UK, especially, we're seeing a lot of people um, who have t are testing positive for COVID or actually um, there's a lot of people in hospital uh, with COVID um, who are double jabbed. Now, can you explain um, for, for the benefit of the audience, like, why the double jabbed people are falling ill with COVID. And um, obviously the, the, there's, there's people out there like your Piers Morgans, for example, he's a classic person who's um, very vocal on Twitter and stuff like that. He's said, he's always shouting about people to go and get vaccinated. He said he's double jabbed, he's had COVID or he's got COVID now and he's done this little daily diary all on Twitter. And then he, he was always screaming about how if he hadn't been vaccinated, he'd probably be dead. Um, but the rate at which we're seeing double jabbed people have COVID um, is pretty crazy considering I, I don't remember so many people I know so, having so flu this, like in the, in yeah. the summer. <clears throat> so the, actually the UK and Scotland, there's some good data from Scotland that's being reported as well as from Israel. One of the problem with the Israeli data, by the way, is that Pfizer cooked a deal with uh, Bibi um, early on to get early access to vaccine for Israel. So, you know, yay, he managed to get a special deal for Israel. The price of that special deal of getting access to vaccine for his people was that Pfizer gets all the data. Furthermore, yeah. all of the adverse events associated with those data are prohibited by contract with the government from being disclosed for 30 years. So the fact that we don't hear about the adverse events from Israel is a feature, not a bug. It's, it's not that they haven't been happening, it's that they have been legally prohibited from reporting them because of the contract deal that they struck with Pfizer. You know, uh, good to know. Um, not so with uh, UK government. And so in many ways, you guys, because you were one of the first to get it, um, you know, did it originate in India or not? Um, you know, first detected in the borders and, you know, in the UK, and then it ripped through your population and your population was relatively highly vaccinated. And, and you can track the uh, incidence of Delta and, you know, you can get this data from Scotland or from the uh, UK in general. And, you see a really nice spike going up. Sorry, that's epidemiology. I don't mean that in 
that it's nice to see that people are getting infected. But but the the spike in infection is very clear. The spike in death is not. It's mm. not anywhere. It's just barely a little bump. And uh, if you look at, and this is this is one of the touchy things in evaluating these kind of data. People are making a big deal about how the total uh, serious disease, hospitalized or death in Scotland, if you add up all the ones that have had one jab or two jabs that are in the hospital or died, uh, and you compare that compare them to the number of people that have had hospital or hospitalized or died that had zero jabs, the rough, the actual numbers show that there's a higher number of people that have had both jabs or one jab than the ones that weren't weren't vaccinated at all. But the problem with that analysis, I mean, you got fair is fair. You got, you know, maybe 15 to 20% of your population, maybe 25% of your population has not had the jab at all. Mm-hmm. And the rest have had one or two. So there's a lot more of the one or two jab people than there are the zero jab people. Yeah, And so what it means is that the the vaccine absolutely is not protecting uh, completely uh, from hospitalization or death, but it doesn't mean yet that the vaccine is making it worse. There is some signs of that in the data, some ghosts in the UK data and in the Israeli data. And that is something that has me really uh, focused because the long history here with coronavirus vaccine development is what we call antibody-dependent enhancement, where the vaccine makes the, dis- makes the virus replicate more and in some cases cause more disease. That, that has been the history of all prior human coronavirus vaccine development programs. Mm. And we've all uh, hoped that we dodged the bullet here. And, and it wasn't going to happen. But the thing about antibody-dependent enhancement is that it shows up as the vaccine effect is declining. So I'm going to try, just follow me here, see if I can do this. Let's see, I got it. Everything's backwards. Um, so the vaccine initially starts up really high, and then it hits a peak, and then it drops down slowly um, after, it's been, after you've been jabbed twice. So you get this fast ramp uh, to a peak and then a slow decline. That decline appears to cross the point at which you're protected pretty effectively against death and disease. appears to cross that point at about six months. That's the point that we got to get jabbed again at six months. That's what that means is Mm -hmm. the durability. That's the technical term. For these vaccines, you know, how long is it protective? Durability is about six months. And so the waning phase hits that line where it crosses. It's no longer really protecting us very well at about six months. The problem with that slow slope is it means it's got a large bracket around it because it's a slow, slow decline where you have a period where you still got a lot of antibodies, but they're not good enough. And that is exactly the point at which antibody dependent enhancement will raise its head historically based on other vaccines and other diseases like dengue. So um, 
in, in uh, uh, respiratory syncytial virus in children was the notable uh, situation in the 60s where the vaccine actually made more kids die after they got infected than the ones that didn't get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. This is the vaccinologist's nightmare. This is the, the thing that just makes everybody, you know, wake up in cold sweats if you're a vaccinologist, is that you could be administering something to people and it actually is making them more susceptible to the disease or to the infection. It's always been the, the history with other coronavirus vaccines and a problem in the veterinary vaccines also for coronaviruses. And we had hoped that these new technologies would make it so that we're making it so that uh, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't detected. But this, is, this gets to kind of the point of these early clinical trials. To my skeptical, jaded, uh, battle-hardened eyes, when I saw those protocols, what I said was, oh, they've specifically engineered these to not detect antibody-dependent enhancement because they didn't do a long enough follow-up. Uh, they, they cut the studies short. And it would take time for the vaccine response to get in the waning phase and then to have virus circulating and detect whether or not you were getting this phenomena of enhanced infection or disease or replication. They didn't do it in the studies, and the FDA told them um, you know, they, it was the most wishy-washy thing I've ever seen, I think, from an FDA document. They kind of said, well, you know, the studies you did don't really show that ADE isn't going to happen, and it's an important thing, and we should, be, uh, we should have that data, and it's important to get that data, and you ought to think about doing those studies, doing some additional studies is pretty much what they said, which was, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company, that's like saying... Uh, green light, not a problem. Go. Uh, no need to spend money and create more risk. You know, the general rule in dealing with regulatory affairs with uh, new products is you don't do anything you don't have to because you might get the wrong result. You might get something that'll stop you from getting marketing authorization and making money. Okay. That's what it's about. And those are the rules. And so when the FDA said, you know, this is a big risk, but you know, you could, you might want to think about doing a clinical study. They, they clearly said, not a problem. <laughs> we don't have to worry about it. And now we're in that window and there are signs in the data suggesting that this could be happening. And that's why this, I, I, this little teaser I gave you, the titers, the replication levels as measured by PCR cycle number in nasal swabs which is about the most crude way you could do it that you could think of, shows that the replication, suggests that the replication happening in vaccine recipients of the Delta variant is at least as high as in the unvaccinated, and it might be a little higher. And the problem with those data is it bundles all vaccine recipients together, whether they've been six months since the second jab or not. Okay. So what it means is it makes that look um, more like what it will look right after you get the jab. And it's not look bundling the data like that isn't looking at the patients that are out six months and beyond. And that's, you know, that we have to get, absolutely have to get that data. And if that data show, those data show that the titers are higher 
in people that are six months and beyond, that's the smoking gun. Um, we got ADE going on. And if yeah. we have ADE, notice the ifs, please. Robert is not saying this is happening. He's saying this is a risk. And it's been a risk that the FDA has known about and the, and the pharmaceutical companies have known about. And uh, they have disregarded this risk. And, uh, and there are signs that this risk could be manifesting now. We don't know for sure. If it is, then, then we really seriously need to think about stopping the vaccine campaign. 100%. Now, there um, there are other just, reasons. I was just going to ask that, Doctor. Um, obviously, a couple of people in the comments have asked um, if you can actually explain like what ADE is. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about it over the last couple of months. Um, and one of the one of the big things I tried to do on the on the show is really break everything down for all the listeners so that they all fully understand it. The so, abbreviation so and stuff like that. antibody dependent enhancement is is multifactorial, and I've been criticized the example that I have given to explain it before in prior podcasts is the simplest uh, mechanism. There are many different ways that antibodies present in your body elicited by a vaccine can cause a virus to replicate at higher levels or produce disease at higher levels um, than in uh, people who haven't been vaccinated. Many different mechanisms. The easiest one to understand so that's the one I'm going to give you, is the one that we can explain here in a couple of minutes, uh, is, is true antibody enhancement. You've got to pay attention to the words. Antibody-dependent enhancement. Each of those means something. Okay, so antibodies. We know, all know what antibodies are. I like to talk about them as being like a fork, okay? And, and you can imagine the tines of a fork, the sticking part, right, you put in the meat, um, imagine those are sticky ends of the end of a little teeny tiny protein. And those ends are specifically of, uh, adapted to stick to the virus. Okay. Or by the way, to bridge two viruses or to bridge two spike proteins if they're anti-spike. Okay. So antibodies have these two groups of tines at one end that does the sticking part. And then they have something like the handle of a fork. And that's not just there to be pretty. That handle part has conserved protein sequences that are recognized by receptors on your cells, certain types of your cells, particularly antigen-presenting cells. So monocytes, macrophage, those kinds of cells. Things that uh, move around in your body and, and pick up uh, complexes of antibodies that are binding something, immune complexes, and they process those, they break them down, and they present them, among other things, they present them to B and T cells as part of the maturation process in the lymph node. So they carry stuff, they go around, they're like garbage collectors, and these cells, and, and they can kind of uh, clean up messes where, where there's been an infection or disease process. And uh, they'll pick up the stuff there that is bound to antibodies. Well, if you have antibodies binding to, and they have a specific receptor that binds to that handle of the fork, that's how they do it on their surface. If the antibodies that are binding 
the virus aren't strong enough, let's say, to block the ability of the virus to infect, but they are strong enough to bind to the virus, then what can happen is they serve as an alternative way for the virus to infect a cell. And then that virus gets carried. Now, they, these, it turns out with this disease, SARS-CoV-2, the data to date are that the virus does not replicate in monocytes and macrophages, but it hangs out there for sure. And it can be moved around with these cells. And by the way, what they do after they do their gobbling thing, where they pick up antibody-coated uh, viruses, among other things, is they scoot off to the lymph nodes, where they can cause those potentially those viruses to infect other things in your lymph nodes. And one of the things that is uh, a problem with this disease <coughs> and this virus, it's not AIDS. It doesn't decimate your T cells, but it absolutely tweaks them. It turns the knobs in ways that makes it good for the virus and not good for your body and not yeah. good for your immune system. And it, it turns down things like it, it manipulates T suppressor populations very clearly. It can produce a broad-based alterations of, of T and B function. Uh, it's basically transitorily immunosuppressive, not in the same profound way that AIDS is. Uh, but it, it's a similar kind of a thing. Uh, and most viruses do that. They're evolved to... Uh, learn how to pick the locks on your cells. And by the way, one of those proteins that picks the locks on your cells that makes them so that they don't produce interferons and other things that they would normally produce is spike. Uh, so uh, it works through NF-kappa-B pathway, among other things. This was the uh, thing that I mentioned on the Dark Horse podcast of, uh, if any of you seen it, the three old men sitting around a table talking for three hours that goes viral. Um, which I still am blown away by. So was, in that, uh, that was with uh, Reiner Formish, wasn't it? No, that's a different one. This is with Brett Weinstein. This was the one that really got me uh, involved in the, this whole thing, and and uh, then it was deleted by YouTube. But in that, I revealed, I, I I made the comment that spike is cytotoxic. It has biologic properties, and and I had discussed this with my colleagues at the FDA sent them the papers and they basically blew me off. This is like last September. And uh, I was fact-checked and Reuters decided that uh, the, the, the brilliant minds at Reuters, uh, I'm sure uh, none, of, none of whom appear to have had a, a, a lick of training as biologists, but they all decided that I was wrong and they put it out that I, I was lying. Since then, you know, there's just gobs and gobs of manuscripts, you know, peer-reviewed publications. Uh, demonstrating that I was right and that spike is toxic and it has a bunch of activities, including opening the blood-brain barrier. And, uh, you know, Reuters still has it out there that I'm a liar, but uh, my academic colleagues are like, it's now accepted truth um, that, that in fact, this is going on. So spike may be one of the problems, uh, twizzling the knobs, I think it is, on the immune response. But uh, having um, this you know, a process like what I described, wherein monocytes, macrophage, or other cells are becoming infected is one way that antibody-dependent enhancement can manifest. So that's a very brief dive into a very complex area.
and I hope that was helpful in a general sense to kind of make sense out of this. Yes, vaccines can cause type certain types of antibody responses that result in worse disease. And mm -hmm. uh, it is absolutely the vaccinologist's nightmare. And it's not very predictable and it's hard to understand the underlying biology. The immune system is incredibly complex. Yeah. Um, so um, based on uh, my last interview with a, uh, a highly qualified doctor was with um, uh, Richard Fleming. Um, and that was a really, really great conversation we have. And we talked deep about the spike proteins as well. So for, for the benefit of the listeners viewing, um, obviously we all have um, a very large number of people, especially here in UK, um, in our families who have been double vaccinated. Um, the rate at which the spike proteins uh, multiply in the body, um, in, in all of these uh, vaccines and that, is is it something to be quite concerned about in terms of um, affecting all the major organs over time that is then going to make that person very um, susceptible to future disease, meaning they are going to get sick more often? I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the camp of, I try not to speculate. I really do. It may not seem so. Uh, I try to stay data-based and I don't go to uh, anything that sounds like conspiracy theories. Uh, Absolutely. We, we, we have to wait for the data to come in on mm -hmm. whether or not there's long-term immunosuppression or immunologic modification of responses post-vaccination, if that's what you're saying, versus yeah. uh, post-infection. Post-infection, yeah. it's very clear. Uh, and um, is, are in a subset of persons, uh, are, are the vaccines causing long-term production of uh, spike protein. And yes, I acknowledge the spike protein has been modified by a two amino acid modification, which causes it to uh, have a more open conformation, this representing two of the three spike uh, subunits in a trimer that forms the stalk and the knob. This would be the knob. Um, so these go through, and there's a great nature paper with uh, all kinds of video uh, showing spike proteins moving around and how they sit on a virus and how they interact with a cell and how they cause infection. If you want to see that, you can find it on my Twitter feed. The mutations that were introduced for all of these vaccines were there to cause spike, which goes normally, breathes, and adopts a conformation once it in interacts with ACE2 and gets cleaved by TMPRSS, among others. It, it then changes its shape and it injects the content of the virus, the genome, into the cell. That's what it does. And uh, so the idea was that if you did this two amino acid mutation, you would lock the spike into an open conformation. And they all use that mutation. It has nothing to do with making spike less toxic. So that's, that's something that people come up with just because they, I don't know why, but it has nothing to do with making spice less toxic. If, if they had engineered spike to make it less toxic, that would require that they acknowledge that spike was toxic in the first place, and they didn't believe that spike was toxic back in the day. So mm -hmm. that's kind of circular. They would have to have a time machine to figure that out. Um, 
So and this, uh, is why we've, um, this is why we've heard so many specialists who have been involved with the, the like the production um, and the testing of these vaccines come out and actively say we've got this wrong um, when they talk about putting it into the shoulder. Opinion. Yeah, and um, I think the, uh, the doctor in Canada um, said it on a podcast not so long ago about how the idea was to inject it into the shoulder and it would stay at the site of injection. However, uh, it's actually getting into the bloodstream. Bloodstream at quite yeah, it sounds, sounds like you're talking about Dr. Bridal, who is yeah. being busy being run out of his university for saying heresy, just to say <laughs> it. Um, uh, that's that's the honest, you know, God's truth of what's happening. Okay. Um, so uh, this is another one of the major regulatory over, you know, screw ups. I, I could say even stronger language. Um, uh, is that they applied the checklist for a regular vaccine. They didn't apply the checklist for a gene therapy product. And these are both gene therapy products and vaccines. Mm -hmm. they're, they're gene therapy technology, both the adenovector and the mRNA applied to vaccine as an indication. And normally with a gene therapy type strategy, one has to characterize where the product goes, what cells get infected, how much protein they make, and for how long. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. Because your body's cells are becoming the manufacturing factory for the vaccine. That's how that works when you think about it. Okay, The, the material that's injected, the jab, is uh, the coating. It's, it's like the ticker tape. It's the message uh, that tells your cells uh, their little cellular machines called ribosomes that make protein that tells them what to make and hijacks the normal uh, process that the cell might be doing otherwise. And so they characterize how much of this message, whether it's the DNA vaccine, the adenovirus, or the RNA vaccine, they characterize how much of that is in the jab precisely and how stable it is and the temperature conditions and the formulation and all that stuff. No, I don't think there's graphene oxide in, in these. Uh, if there is, it's a contaminant, what we would call an adulterant. So they characterize all that stuff. They don't characterize how much that makes your body make. And your body is the real manufacturing factory here in terms of the final antigen, the thing that generates the immune response and guides the immune response. And so we don't know, the honest truth is, I don't know, and neither does anybody else, how long these things are being made in your body. I do know from first principles that the idea behind mRNA vaccines is that the mRNA doesn't stick around very long. It gets degraded pretty quickly, like hours, maybe, um, hopefully 12 hours, maybe at the most. Uh, the proteins last a long time after they're made, and that's now been shown uh, by various researchers here in the States, is one of the things they get taken up by our friend, the macrophage, and uh, they get carried around and they actually turn those macrophage um, on in a way that they're not normally. So you get some atypical macrophage that remain activated for up to six months that still have spike protein after vaccination. From first principles, adenoviral vectors, so in the UK, I, I don't know if you have the, 
Oxford, AstraZeneca, Sanofi jab or not uh, versus the J&J jab. Mm-hmm. So J&J and Oxford, Sanofi, AstraZeneca are the same platform, uh, just like uh, BioNTech, Pfizer, and Moderna are the same platform. And that adenoviral vector platform was designed for gene therapy purposes. And it's designed to make as much protein as possible for as long as possible. Surprisingly, it the immune response from the those adenoviral vectored vaccines seems to be lower than for the RNA, which is a paradox. You'd expect if they're making more protein for a longer period of time, the immune response would be higher. I don't know what to make of that. But uh, there it is. The um, ad vectors have been used for other vaccines quite a bit. Um, there's a couple, I think, that are licensed. One, I think, for Ebola. And so it's not the first uh, rodeo, uh, sorry, Americanism, uh, mm-hmm. for the, the adenoviral vectors. And these adverse events that you're seeing, like the coagulation problems and the Guillain-Barre syndrome and some of these other things, they haven't been a problem with the adenoviral vectors before. They are a problem with the virus when you get infected. You know, microcoagulopathy and many of these other things are features, characteristics of the virus infection disease. So we can't really say what the spectrum of adverse events would be with the RNA platform uh, alone, you know, if it wasn't making spike. But there is this odd alignment that, particularly long COVID, this long syndrome that uh, chronic COVID that many people get, including myself, I was infected in the end of February of 2020. Uh, a lot of those symptoms are present in the post-vaccination syndromes and in the post-infection syndromes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's this is you know um, what. What's the common factor in all this? Well, the common factor is spike. So it's reasonable to hypothesize that spike is driving a lot of this. Yeah. And um, so that's there we are with that one. Yeah. Now, AJ, there's another big issue uh, that I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to Gert van der Bosche yeah. of the Netherlands. Yeah. You have? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're familiar and your audience is familiar with the idea that um, if we're training everybody in the world virtually to have the same immune response because we're jabbing them all with spike vaccines. So we're training their antibodies and their immune system in a similar fashion. They're all getting the same training that what that will do is drive the development of vaccine escape mutants. And uh, those escape mutants are likely to to home in over time, these mutants, to kind of a super mutant. That's just from first principles of, you know, fundamentals of Darwin, uh, you know, viral evolution. And is that the danger of trying to vaccinate everybody? Bingo. Yeah, these governments are trying to do on a mass scale, and it's really, really um, very alarming that the rate at which they're doing it, especially in Australia, they're literally like pinning, you know, they're forcing. It's not only alarming, it's darn stupid. It's just, you know, give a three year old a hammer, everything becomes a nail. 
Uh, it's that level of sophistication. You know, some is good, more is better. No, this is this is at a scale the world has never seen before. You have to think, and you have to listen to people like Gert. And I'm convinced that Gert has got it right. It's certainly enough of a risk. What I advocate, he advocates, and it sounds like you know now we have the World Health Organization today. Tedros is saying. Well, we shouldn't be triple jabbing people. We should be sharing vaccines so that in the emerging economies, they have at least 10% vaccinated. Well, that sounds an awful lot like vaccinate the high risk people, which is what I've been saying and Gert's been saying, many mm -hmm. other people have been saying. Policy that makes sense, as opposed to this kind of, you know, give a three-year-old a hammer approach. It's just, in my mind, just darn stupid. Uh, Policy that makes sense is use the vaccine selectively for people that are at really high risk, elderly, mm -hmm. morbidly obese, you know, people with certain immunodeficiency syndromes, vascular leak syndrome, there's other things. Um, for instance, in the childhood cohort in the United States through age of 18, we've had about 400 deaths since the start of the outbreak. Every single one of those had strong pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. And even in the elderly cohort, the average number of pre-existing conditions of the people that die, they have at least three major pre-existing conditions that put them at risk. So, you know, if you're, if you're a 75 year old, healthy, uh, you know, ex soldier that is still off, uh, um, walking the fields and tending your farm and, and you're not in a dense urban environment, it's a pretty good chance. You're going to, you're going to dodge the bullet on this. Uh, yeah. even if you do get infected. So, so I was going to ask you on that um, because today uh, in the UK, the, um, the, uh, the government or the JCVI came out and said that it's full steam ahead to offer you know. the vaccine to all healthy 16, 17 year olds um, as so, fast as possible and getting them to yeah. come forward. So I was They're, like, why? If, if they, they keep, they need it. if they keep good data on that, that, probability is very high that you're going to have more kids die from the vaccine than you're going to have that they would have died from getting the jab. I mean, from getting the infection. Why because would that be? We clearly what's the, the, what, what's the, um, what, what, yeah, what's the reasons behind that possibility? Cardiotoxicity alone is enough. So this microcoagulation in the heart, people say, Oh, the kids, they get, they get heart disease, but then they get over it and they're fine. No, I'm sorry. You don't get over heart disease. When you damage heart muscle, just like lung, it scars. It doesn't regenerate. Mm. Okay. So when we say that, there's the kids that die uh, from, from their heart problems. And there are, you know, there it's rare. But the incidence of death and disease in that cohort is extremely rare from the mm. virus itself. And this gets to the point of what Fauci has now finally come around to after these many months. And that we've been working with the team that I've been at, working with at DOD of repurposing drugs. If, if you have the, the strategy that, that a lot of uh, thinking people are coming to that makes sense, is you vaccinate the ones at high risk. You don't vaccinate everybody else because otherwise you're gonna drive escape mutants. And 
you come in, you make drugs available and treatment strategies, and you treat people as soon as they develop disease, infection, mm. etc. And if you do that, you can get ahead of the virus. Mm. And that is precisely what's now come out of Tony Fauci's mouth. I've been told by British physicians, they're not even allowed to say this, that the National Health Service is adamant that there is no options for treating and you shouldn't even talk about it. When we, we all came out of our houses and clapped this, the, the uh, National Health Service uh, every Thursday for several weeks, the same National Health Service that's actually saying this right now, that we should, uh, doctors and physicians, and, uh, you know, are making uh, nurses, doctors, medical professionals all around the country extremely scared for their jobs and speaking out about the atrocities that they've seen. And we as a nation, we're encouraged to clap them every Thursday. I'm not saying, uh, obviously, clearly not saying that... Um, yeah, all the NHS is bad because there's over a million employees. Um, however, there's a large majority that over this period of time have done serious harm and openly done serious harm, um, haven't given informed consent, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. And now, obviously, as you just mentioned there, um, almost crippling people's abilities to be able to even mention the uh, alternative. Yeah, you can't talk about it. Treatment. Um, and it's the same in Australia. That they've, they've, I've got friends who are nurses in Australia, English friends, have been told that you will be struck off, you will lose your job if you even talk negatively about the vaccines. Yeah. So, so what makes sense? And and I think that we have a crack in the wall now. Uh, yes, I am a Pink Floyd fan. Um, mm -hmm. uh, is Tony? Tony now, Dr. Fauci has come out with this statement, and. Now that he said that, uh, he's pivoting because of the Delta data that got disclosed and is, is available from Israel and UK and now the United States. Uh, so their old position that the vaccines are perfect and perfectly safe is no longer tenable. And uh, so now he's come to the conclusion that many of us, including my team did like in January of 2020, um, that we need drugs and uh, many other people too. Not, this is not, we didn't, we weren't the only ones. Many, many uh, came to a similar conclusion. And, uh, and there are many agents that have been identified. Fluvoxamine, ivermectin, as we mentioned now, it's, it's Tesslory gets a, a gold star at, at some point. I hope um, somebody pins a medal on her. Uh, and, uh, Many others have, have mentioned, so we got ivermectin, famotidine plus celecoxib, fluvoxamine, uh, monolucast, uh, pixaban for the anticoagulation, low molecular weight heparin, uh, you know, steroids in some context, they have to be used carefully. I think the use, overuse of dexamethasone is a major problem. Uh, if you look at the recovery trial, the, the indicated population uh, for dex is very, very limited. DEX is the biggest of the big hammers with uh, steroids, anti-inflammatories. Uh, it should not be used outpatient. Uh, but there's a number of these agents that can be used, in, and there's uh, fairly strong data about vitamin D will not get you out of there, out of the hole, if you already have the infection. But it, I think it's pretty clear that vitamin D levels um, can help... It, uh, making sure that your vitamin D levels are where they should be. By the way, obesity is a risk for uh, lowered insufficient vitamin D. Um, 
Making sure your vitamin D levels are at the right level by testing and supplementation. Uh, I think there's evidence that that may reduce your risk, but it has to be done as part of kind of a lifestyle change. Uh, and, and it can't be, the data are not uh, supportive of vitamin D in the acute setting. If you've already got the disease, you know, taking a ton of vitamin D isn't going to get you out of the woods. Mm. Uh, so uh, there are other agents and other practices. The best thing that anybody can do is drop your weight. Um, I wish I could drop mine more. Um, so stay healthy. Try to stay on the lean side. Uh, make sure that your your vitamins and in, in uh, you know the measurable things are where they should be. Work with your doc on that. But there's there's these other agents, and um, uh, the data suggests they're not perfect. Uh, but uh, they will keep a large fraction of people out of the hospital if they're applied aggressively and early. Mm -hmm. And I think that's worth doing. And yeah, I suspect sure. that at some point, some PhD student, probably about a thousand of them, are going to write their theses on how many lives were lost unnecessarily because of this policy of not supporting uh, early treatment with suboptimal drugs. Uh, and, and I suspect the numbers are going to be a real eye-opener in terms of excess deaths because of these policies relying only on the jab. Yeah. On top of the fact that universal jabs are going to put us in a hole that I don't know if we get out of as a population having to do mm. with uh, vaccine escape mutants. Um, Sorry to be a, one, a gentleman. One, one thing that's been really frustrating for me over the last, I'd say, two weeks, and now obviously uh, you've uh, kindly exclusively dropped these bombs on the uh, the show tonight, which is great. Um, but it's the it's things like the CDC coming out and saying that they're going to recall the PCR test because it doesn't differentiate between flu, colds, and COVID, which have been shut for ages. There's 67 or 70 peer-reviewed papers which tell everybody that masks do absolutely nothing, yet we've all been forced to wear them, or those who have chosen to have. Um, and now you've got people like Fauci pivoting, saying that, oh, actually, these alternative treatments uh, will work. Uh, so a, a year later, in some cases, or a year and a half later, we're at this point where they're, they're basically coming out and telling us or telling the public what we've been shouting for a year, called conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hat wearers, whatever. Um, hundreds of people have died, hundreds of thousands, millions worldwide, businesses closed down, loads of unavoidable deaths. The NHS has got a 12 million per person waiting list now of actual sick, mentally and physical people. Um, like, how is this okay? How can they get away with this? Like, at, like these governments, like what, what can be done to try and, um, I guess, claw back some dignity, if anything, for the whole population who have had so much stripped away from them? Oh, you're so British. Dignity. Um, I love that. Uh, yeah, so... Integrity uh, is another and, one. Yeah. I, um, it ain't fair. It ain't right. It ain't proper, right? Yeah, um, that's it, yeah. I love that. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, what does this mean when we get on the other side of this tunnel? Uh, in in terms of, uh, I'm just going to say it, how corrupt is the system? Uh, 
we our our White House, in their infinite wisdom, directed their the Department of Justice here in the states, and they complied. And they came out with a new new determination, legal determination, that the FDA is not bound by the common rule. What that means is that they believe that the FDA can disregard the Nuremberg Code, Helsinki Accords, all of that stuff. They don't have to comply with that. What? Um, it's it's all the rules that I've been taught in these way too many years of training that I've had to take are just been thrown out the door, uh, mm. and and they don't care. It's you know rules don't matter. They do whatever they want to do, um, and and I speak about the noble lie. This is this Platonic concept that it's okay. Uh, for the overlords, you know, the high high status individuals or the public leaders, to lie to the common people for their own good, and that's that's what's been going on, and we have clear documentation of that in the case of the good Dr. Fauci in his own personal emails that were yeah. uh, mm -hmm. forced to be disclosed, and and he's he has no no problems lying, uh, that he denies that he lies in Senate testimony, but in fact, he lies all the time. And in his emails, he says, it's okay. You know, I can, you know, say whatever I want to say. Um, so they believe that they have been doing uh, us a favor by not us common folk, by not telling us the truth. And that if they told us the truth about vaccine safety or other things, then we wouldn't comply. We wouldn't accept vaccine and we would all die. We would, many more of us would die. That's the logic. So here in the States, we had the White House saying the dirty dozen, these people that spread misinformation about vaccines, they're all causing people to die excessively. Fortunately, mm -hmm. I dodged that one and I was not on that list. We haven't got but one I in the UK people yet. Were. We haven't got one of these in the UK yet. One of these uh, dirty oh, dozen. Oh, well, well just wait. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you know, it seems like, uh, uh, Political ideas uh, start at CDC and in the NIH, and they just kind of spread throughout the world. Uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping to get on there. I'm hoping to get on there. It's coming soon. To, coming soon to uh, uh, an NHS announcement uh, in your own hometown. Um, yeah. So uh, the dirty dozen, and then also they put out a number of statements that it's the unvaccinated that are causing death and disease in everybody else. It's the unvaccinated mm. that are causing the mutants. It's the unvaccinated that are putting an all, us all at risk. I've had, you know, it's always from an unlisted number. Uh, phone calls, you know, I don't, I won't even answer a phone call anymore if it doesn't show exactly who's calling me. Because mm. I'm tired of, of getting the, you know, is this Dr. Malone? You're causing people to die. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and I've been warned that I need to go buy a shotgun, uh, to protect myself from the crazies, uh, no, the 12 gauge is the way to go. Uh, don't get a rifle or pistol, get yourself a good 12 gauge with mm -hmm. enough shells. And, uh, if they come after you, you know, you can ratchet the chamber and that'll probably be enough to get them to back off. <laughs> what, what kind of a crazy world is this? Uh, but, yeah, um, um, I've, um, I found myself, I could find myself in a similar situation, but obviously we don't have, uh, obviously, uh, gun laws here in the UK. So 
uh, I, I like to think I have to go good old fashioned um, English, like Robin Hood style, and like you know, get a bow and arrow out. <laughs> if anyone comes after me, like, get yourself a good crossbow. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard, hard take out a crowd with a crossbow though. Uh, Twelve gauge will do it. Um, so, uh, you know, I what a crazy world we live in, and I don't know mm. what we do from here. I don't. This is I've been so. Uh, about a month and a half ago, I put something out on LinkedIn before I was deleted and then put back on. But uh, um, so I I made this little comment. Um, what would happen to what do you think will happen to public trust in uh, the public health system if it turns out that ivermectin is safe and has efficacy and the vaccines are not perfectly safe? and uh and protective and uh i just it went viral and i got just hundreds and hundreds of comments back and people all pretty much said we're already there uh we don't trust them anymore i'm i get emails from people saying well not only am i not going to take this jab but i'm not going to have my kids take the pediatric jab mm. and uh that's the cost that we're going to pay. That's the price. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I hope that the geniuses, uh, what do you call it? Downing Street. We call it the hill. I hope the geniuses on Downing Street kind of factored this into their risk analysis and said, hmm, you know, oh, okay, that's an okay thing. We'll just throw away public trust. Uh, what's, you know, not to worry. Um, uh, but I, I think they're very much at a point now, and this has become uh, this question has been asked a lot. Um, you, you know, you might not have seen so much of it over there, but um, a lot of people who've known Boris Johnson for a long time, many many years, have said it's like it's like they're not even looking at the same person anymore. So, like, uh, and for that very reason, you can kind of see that he's very much a puppet being coerced, and I, I probably blackmailed himself um, because there's no way that that man who's been so pro-British all his life who's you know done a book on called the churchill factor um wakes up every morning and goes yeah you know i'm totally doing right by my people today not a chance uh and anyone watching this will you know who knows anything about boston will 100 agree with me there's no way that he wakes up in the morning thinking that everything's fine and dandy and that he's doing best by the british people um and again that's this so, so I, I got it so i got a specific beef with the uk i'm just gonna roll it out here um, the Trusted News Initiative, this this globalized media um, force that's been created that is censoring all this information and blocking people's ability to communicate, mm. that's that's led by the BBC. Yeah, 100%. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's not okay. Um, no. You know, it's not at all what I would expect from the BBC. They're However... Horrendous. They they uh, they just better protect money done. That's all I have to say. Uh, <laughs> because that's one of our favorite shows, and we're very grateful to the BBC for Gardner's World, but uh, we're very ungrateful for the BBC leading the Trusted News Initiative. Yeah, um, absolutely. And my um, understanding absolutely. is that you guys uh, have to you you can decide to pay a tithe to the BBC, and um, all I can say is uh, gently encouraging you to look into the trusted news initiative and decide whether that's the kind of policy that you really want to have coming out of your national broadcasting corporation. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and this has been one of my biggest beefs for the whole way through is that um, our amazing elderly, um, many of whom were either, you know, well, some still alive, you know, World War II veterans. Um, and, you know, obviously all the other elderly that we have, are the, they're the ones that built our country up, you know, to what it is now. But they're the ones that are now facing a life of fear, like hammered home by the BBC and the just ridiculous rhetoric that comes out of Chris Whitty and uh, Boris Johnson and our previous health minister, Mank Han Hancock's mouth on a weekly basis. Um, but that's all they've known. They've only ever known to watch the BBC. So they get up in the morning, put the news on, they watch it at lunchtime, they watch it in the evening uh, because that's all they've ever known. And the BBC know that. They know that their biggest viewership is made up of elderly people and probably watch the news and the local news. Um, and you can clearly see that because of they still walk around town outside wearing masks and, you know, not many young people do. And it literally breaks me. It generally does. And sometimes I just want to have, and I love to, I chat to everybody and I, I just want to sit each individual elderly person down and just say, you know, just try and install some, um, some more, you know, courage and confidence in what they do. And uh, I was explaining to my audience uh, last week, I was sat in a cafe, my local cafe, and this elderly lady came up to me and asked to buy me a drink. And I was just like, hello, uh, a bit taken aback by it. And um, her daughter was behind her and she said, oh, I, I want to buy a drink because my daughter sends me the links to all your podcasts. And because of your shows, um, I've actually learned a hell of a lot more and I've thrown the mask away and I'm now getting out of the house and I'm seeing friends and giving family hugs. And I'm not joking. I, I literally said to her, I'll be right back in a minute. I, just really, I really need the toilet. And I actually had to shed a tear because that meant so much to me. Um, yeah. because of my passion for people, my passion for the elderly, um, but seeing what they've been put through on a daily, weekly basis. And um, it was just amazing, such an amazing feeling. And it was local as well, which was great. It sounds like you and I are cut from the same cloth. Um, and uh, I, I congratulate you. that I've experienced that with uh, occasion. You know, there's sometimes things that just kind of get right through your armor. I had this mm -hmm. letter handwritten letter so carefully written from the 75 year old gentleman and and he was so meticulous how he wrote it and then he'd make a mistake and he would use typewriter correction on it. i mean when's the last time you got a handwritten two-page letter and and uh he was just expressing the same kind of uh some uh feelings and um mm. thanking me and uh you know, I'm I'm beset by a daily barrage of trolls and fact checkers, a uh, number of whom work in the UK, by the way. Uh, some of the leading uh, pop-up fact checker organizations that are really kind of trollery version 2.0 now, uh, that are funded by Facebook and a lot of others. Uh, they're they're based in in the UK, and it just can get you down. Mm. But these. Uh, Sometimes these little brief moments of sunshine where somebody reaches out to you and says, thank you. Yeah. And it makes it yeah. so much worth it. And, you know, um, you know, I still get people uh, DMing me on Instagram and that uh, telling me that like, I'm talking shit. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but when reality is I'm, it's not my opinion. I've created a platform for experts like yourself to spread the word, spread the message of what's really going on because the people deserve the truth 
you know, after everything everyone's been through the last 18 months, no matter where you are in the world and what people are going through now, especially in Australia, especially now in like new places like New York and France and Italy, you know, where they're really ramping up the fear and um, the draconian measures. It's um, it's so important to have a platform, to, you know, from people for people like yourselves who are being censored everywhere else. Um, so, guys and girls, you know, it's again, it's, I can't stress this enough. It's so important that you share messages and videos and interviews people like uh, Dr. Robert Mullane do, not just this one, but any others that you do. You know, it's, it's so important to get those messages. Oh, out. thanks. So, AJ, we're now in an hour and a half, and my wife is giving me smoke signals that I've got uh, something <laughs> I got to go do. Uh, yeah. So I got to scoot and I apologize, but it has no, been no, a great, great pleasure. Mm. And, and great. Um, you know, keep on keeping on uh, and, uh, you know, uh, careful sticking your head up. Uh, they got to see you to shoot you. Uh, mm. So uh, there's, there's, there's two sayings in the DC bureaucracy world, you know, don't put your head up because uh, if they can't see you, they can't shoot you. And the other one is no good deed will go unpunished. Uh, so hopefully you're able to dodge both of those. Uh, and and um, I look forward to seeing you on the other side, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to quickly conclude before you shoot off, obviously we covered a lot of important points here, ladies and gents, and it was uh, amazing for Dr. Malone to share with us today exclusively on the show that Mr. or sort of say Dr. Anthony Fauci has suddenly pivoted um, and actually come out and said that alternative treatments are and will. Well, well, no, specifically, he didn't endorse alternative treatments. He endorsed new drugs. Oh, new drugs. That would Sorry. be administered early on uh, yeah. that would transform this to something like the common cold. Yes. Uh, so he's still, he's still uh, um, in the, uh, we have to have patented pharmaceutical company uh, profit generating products. Uh, yeah. But at least he's now to the point where he's saying uh, we're not going to beat this just with vaccines, which is also now the Pfizer position uh, conveniently. Yeah. Uh, so that's where he's at. I just wanted to correct that. He is he's not you don't see Tony saying ivermectin is the solution. I guarantee. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. but he good. is. Yeah. So there's that. Go ahead. Yeah. And obviously the uh, the clear and obvious thing and the real threat that we face in the minute is vaccinating children and the real dangers that it does have. And yeah. as you mentioned, um, as you rightly mentioned, then you think that children shouldn't be vaccinated because it's absolutely not. It's the, the data are quite clear. The risk benefit ratio is upside down almost to age 30. Age 30. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and that would actually, uh, a, a friend of mine who's a nurse, uh, said that they've got a 400% increase in their ward of, heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots. Uh, yeah, there was this German pathologist report out uh, that is being uh, suppressed by the German government. Uh, he was He's a in Hanover, as I recall, very experienced pathologist and um, did a series of autopsies, uh, deaths uh, at um, within two weeks of vaccine administration. And um, about 40 to 50% of those deaths uh, seem to be directly attributable to vaccine and, and microcoagulopathy. Now, I, I really got to scoot, uh, um, if you don't mind. No, absolutely, guys. Thank you. Thank you so, uh, so much for coming on, uh, Dr. Malone. I'll let you go off and I'll, I'll conclude with the guys. Um, so thank you. And uh, we'll catch up over 
email again thank you very much and i'll be Super. sure to send you all the uh the links to this so you can share with your audience um okay. go and go and enjoy the rest of your afternoon okay guys and girls thank you so much for tuning in thank you for all your amazing comments it's been an absolute pleasure having you again tonight on the aj roberts show um sorry i couldn't answer every single question obviously there's been so many coming through um i will try and go through them um but I'll probably tomorrow now because uh, I too uh, haven't even number dinner yet. Um, again, it, what a masterclass from such a highly qualified and educated man, Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA uh, for the vaccines, obviously shared some real huge, huge insights with us there and some huge bombs, um, which is being exclusive on the show, which is uh, amazing. Um, and I will be bringing you more. So um, look forward to next week when I'll be having people from the legal side of aspects coming on the show where they're going to break down exactly how unlawful the governments are being, exactly what they're doing wrong, um, how f far against the law it basically is, and um, and what needs to be done about it, and what is in, in, in motion to actually do something about it from a legal standpoint. This is going to be brilliant, for, especially for people who've had businesses, uh, companies, uh, you know, have lost things, things all shut down. Uh, especially based off these, you know, fraudulent tests that have now they've just admitted that uh, do not differentiate between flus, colds, and COVID, which I know many of us knew over a year ago. Um, but you know, what can we do other than try and claw back our lives to best possible? But we need to do this as a team, guys. We need to do this together, right? It doesn't matter, matter whether you know. There's no tier two site, uh, two tier site here, right? There's no jab on jab. We are one. OK, we are one under the same government that is doing everything in their power to try and create these two tier societies. So what do we do to fight that? We stick together. OK, we throw it back in their face. We kick back and we stand up and we say no. OK, that's what we need to do. And the more of us that can keep doing this, OK, the quicker this goes away. All right. And that's all of us as a collective. All right. Let's stop bowing down to these needless and that, you know, there's no data or science to back up anything that they're doing. All right. We need to start saying no. You heard it there from the man himself, Dr. Robert Malone. OK, it's very, very dangerous to be vaccinating our kids. He said it there on the show. He feels he says there will be a lot of deaths within children. Um, there already has been quite a number of them in the United States and in Israel. OK, you can easily look that up. There's been a hell of a lot of cases of myocarditis um, and heart attacks in young people who have been vaccinated because uh, at the end of the day they're still growing um you know um, among many other things all right so please be mindful of that especially as they've now announced in the uk that they plan to vaccinate 16 17 year olds um look forward to next week's shows guys we do have a show on monday um which is going to be a huge huge bombshell okay a huge news story which hasn't been released in the uk to the le this level anyway. I'm, I can't talk any further about it now, all right, or, or give any hints away, um, but it is absolutely massive. It's not vaccine related, um, but it's a big story and things that have been happening for the last year and a half um, that have been uh, tried to be kept under wraps, let's put it that way. All right, so please look forward to that. Put it in your diary for Monday night. Um, it's gonna be me and several other people on the podcast that you're gonna find very, very interesting. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. Sorry about the delay. Um, please make sure you share this with your friends and family. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to The AJ Robert Show on YouTube. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
uh, and Google as well, guys. All right, so there's plenty of platforms for you to find out all the content and um, hopefully put a smile on your face in these uncertain times. All right, you guys take care. Have a lovely evening and I'll see you next time on the AJ Roberts Show.